we're going to spend one more week in the medieval period before catching back up with Luther, where we left him uh, in the lurch in 1521 at Worms, having already been excommunicated by Rome, and then at Worms being declared an enemy of the state, uh, a criminal. So we're, we're catching back up with Luther uh, next week, and if I manage my time well, we'll, uh, we'll start to make some connections even at the end uh, to Luther. Uh, but today we're going to, to look at two, two more events, episodes, so to speak, in the life of the church in the 14th century. The Babylonian captivity of the church from 309 to 377 and the, the second great schism. Uh, church history talks about sometimes two great schisms. The first great schism was in 1054, the great schism between the East and the West. This is the second great schism uh, which took place from 1378 to 1414. So both of these events take place in the 14th century, uh, a particularly nasty, miserable period uh, of, of European history. I spend a lot of time, I confess, daydreaming, uh, often about what time, what period of church history I'd like to live in. Um, I'm sure we all do this. It's not just my vocation. Uh, usually I settle on 1920s uh, Paris, but that's just me. I'm a Francophile. Um, one thing I, I, I've never thought to myself is that I'd like to live in the 14th century. Uh, I've, never, I've never thought that to myself at all. Um, for a whole variety of reasons, to give you, to give you a couple uh, off the top of my head. The, the, the Black Plague, the Black Death, uh, spread through Europe from the 1340s. Basically, it came east as part of uh, Christendom's conflict with the Ottoman Turkish Empire. Great masses of people clashing, uh, intermingling, and all of a sudden new diseases are born. Some strain, probably, of the bubonic plague. And it moves west and just decimates the populations uh, of Europe. Um, so if you lived in the 14th century, chances are you probably wouldn't have lived very long. You would have just died uh, of the plague. Um, if you were a military man or lived somewhere uh, on a battlefield or near a battlefield, you probably would have died. The Hundred Years' War played out during the 14th century between England uh, and, and France. Uh, in fact, part of our story today has to do with the rise of France to, uh, to, to prominence. In, in, in especially Western European history. So it was a nasty uh, time in which to live. Um, also, you would have had to live through both the Babylonian captivity of the church and the Second Great Schism. So spiritually speaking, uh, during especially this period of time, you would have been uh, under the excommunication ban from one of the various popes. There were at least two popes during the Great Schism claiming authority, excommunicating the other, uh, sometimes there were three popes at the very end of the uh, story, all excommunicating each other. So in terms of looking to the church for assurance of salvation, you would not have had assurance of salvation in the 14th century. Uh, so an unhappy time uh, in which to live. Nonetheless, that's, that's where we are today. Uh, okay, to, to set the stage really for the Babylonian captivity, we have to think about the rise of France to prominence. Um, really briefly... It may come as a surprise to you, but popes didn't always live in Rome, especially during the 13th and 14th centuries. Um, sometimes that was you know, not, not their desire. They wanted to live in Rome, but powerful Italian families forced them into exile 
and so popes had to wander around Europe. Uh, that's, that's part of the story. Other times, popes just weren't, weren't Roman, weren't Italian even, and so they wanted to live closer to home. Uh, it was not at all uncommon for the bishop of Rome to live elsewhere, which is one of the great problems, actually, of the medieval church, the problem of absenteeism, of someone holding ecclesiastical office in the church uh, but not residing in that territory. Uh, there's a closely related problem to it I'll just throw out there as well. The problem of pluralcy. In fact, absenteeism results from the problem of pluralcy. Pluralcy is holding more than one ecclesiastical office. So you're the bishop of Rome and also the bishop of Florence and also the archbishop, let's say, of Mainz in Germany. Well, you can't be in three places at once. So by holding multiple offices, it guarantees the fact that you'll be absent in at least two of those sees. So this is something like, I tell students this at the seminary, um, sometimes they chuckle, sometimes they seem offended. It's like the problem of, of multi-site churches. I hope I'm not stepping on any toes, probably not here, right? But if you're a pastor of multi-site church, you can't be in more than one place at once. And so there's a significant pastoral problem because you're absent. Uh, and you're holding more than one office. Uh, so popes didn't always live um, in Rome. Uh, frequently they lived, uh, it comes to be, in France. In fact, uh, you could say that the whole geographic uh, center of the empire shifts west during the 14th century for a whole variety of reasons. Um, for one, uh, the Ottoman Turk Empire that we introduced last week um, continued to be aggressive and to gain land uh, in the east. So North Africa, uh, a part of uh, Christendom, falls to the Turks and is under Ottoman rule. Um, most of the Mediterranean world, in fact, by the end of the 14th century, is being ruled by the Ottoman Empire. So the whole eastern, as you're looking at it, the whole eastern side of the empire just got a lot smaller with the Turkish rule of the Ottomans. Uh, and then it's also the case that the first Great Schism in 1054 split the church into eastern and western churches. So at the beginning of the 14th century, Rome is not in the center of the empire anymore. It's really on the, the eastern edge of the empire. So the whole gravitational pull of Christendom moves, moves west um, towards France. And it also happens to be the case that, that France really rises um, to prominence uh, in, as one of the great military empires, really, um, of, of the medieval period. <coughs> so the story begins today with these two gentlemen, Philip the Fair, the King of France, and Boniface VIII, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. Philip the Fair, we don't know exactly what motivated him. It's possible that he was seizing upon the opportunity uh, to influence the church, to turn the church uh, towards his own agenda. It's possible that he feared the church and it's uh, increasing, it's putting down of roots in France. Um, maybe it's both, it's probably both. In any case, Philip the Fair, at the beginning of the 14th century, decided to impose new taxes on the church, to actually tax bishops, 
um, to tax church officials. You know, the church was something like a nonprofit, kind of a tax-exempt organization. They're the ones who collected taxes. They didn't pay taxes. Well, Philip the Fair reverses that, starts charging uh, the church, um, insisting on taxes. And then he takes a step further and actually assumes to himself the power and right to install bishops, right? To put his men in charge of the church uh, in France, people who would be loyal to him and not to anyone else. Well, Boniface VIII uh, takes issue with this, and he writes one of the, easily one of the more famous documents uh, in the church's political history at any rate, Unum Sanctum. In 1302, 1303, somewhere in there, a papal decree rejecting uh, the encroachment of power by Philip the, 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 uh, Philip the Fair, insisting um, that the church has both swords, the spiritual sword and the civil sword, uh, the temporal powers belong to the church, and the church... Uh, has been given the temporal sword, the civil sword, uh, by Peter for the church, pro-ecclesia. Not just the spiritual sword given to the church, but the temporal sword has been given. It's been given to the church, in other words, to rule civilly for the church. Um, and, and in other words, you might say it's kind of an expansion of the vision that we've seen uh, in various places in Christendom. Um, Boniface VIII is insisting um, he has not only the power to make kings, to anoint bishops, uh, or sorry, not only the power to anoint bishops, but also the power to make kings, and also to advise kings uh, on how they should use the civil, the civil sword. So a complete rejection of Philip the Fair's um, moves. Well, they're bound to be conflict here. And in fact, Philip the Fair... Uh, sends his army to attack the Bishop of Rome and trounces the Bishop of Rome's uh, army. Boniface uh, is wounded. They fight in northern Italy, um, and Boniface himself is there uh, on the battlefield. Uh, He's wounded um, and with his tail between his legs goes back to Rome and dies just a few weeks uh, after the battle. So Philip the Fair wins a, a pretty decisive victory Um, And despite making the claims for power in this papal decree, Philip calls his bluff um, and and trounces him. Boniface dies, and now the church uh, has the opportunity to elect a new bishop of Rome, uh, a new pope. The big decision that they're facing at this point is, do they choose a pro-French pope who will appease Philip the Fair, give in to his demands, or do they choose a pope who toes the line set by Boniface, uh, resisting uh, the civil sphere, claiming for itself power and authority? Well, uh, they choose the route of appeasement, right? They choose uh, Clement V, I won't put his name down on the board, uh, they choose a pope, Clement V, um, he was a Frenchman by birth. He was already the Archbishop of Bordeaux. Uh, they choose him. And he does a number of things. He first overturns Boniface had excommunicated Philip the Fair, um, as you might imagine. 
you attack the pope, <laughs> you get excommunicated. That's how these things work. Um, well, Clement overturns uh, the excommunication sentence. Um, he publishes a new papal decree defending the reputation of Philip the Fair, talking about what a warm-hearted you know, gentleman Philip was, that he did everything he did because of his deep piety and his love for the church in attacking the pope. Um, and, uh, and then at Philip the Fair's invitation, moves the papacy to Avignon, to France. So the popes had spent some time in France before then, um, but it's, it's Clement V who, in 1309, moves the papacy um, to, <coughs> to Avignon in France. Um, For 70 years, popes then live uh, in France. For 70 years, seven popes, um, almost all of them were French. Uh, in fact, if there are three characteristics of, of the church uh, during its Avignon papacy. The first would be, I suppose, the influence of France. All seven popes uh, elected during, the, during this time uh, were French. And I think there were... 115-ish um, in there, over 100, let's say, uh, cardinals uh, uh, at, during this time. All of them, with one or two exceptions, were Frenchmen. So all the cardinals, the curia, in other words, um, the popes at this point had courts, just like kings and monarchs have courts. The popes have courts. Um, and, and all the members of the court and all the members of the college cardinals are are, with one or two exceptions, French. So French influence is pretty dominant um, during this period. Um, in fact, they're really taking their cues from first Philip the Fair and then his successors. At one point, Philip has a, a, a sort of skirmish, a feud uh, with Belgium. And so he tells the Pope, hey, put those guys under excommunication, and the Pope does. So at this point, um, this is quite contrary to Boniface's vision uh, the Pope is exercising the spiritual sword of discipline completely at the behest of the civil ruler. Um, so this is not what previous popes had, had thought. Uh, another characteristic of the Avignon Papacy is that uh, they went on spending sprees, pretty, pretty extraordinary spending sprees. They built uh, a papal palace in Avignon. That if, you, if you ever go to France, you can go visit. It's, uh, it's a pretty magnificent uh, place. Some of the first popes, I think, to ever patronize the arts were the Avignon popes, um, these Frenchmen. And so, um, big spending sprees. Uh, going along with the spending sprees, with the influence of France, has to be the third characteristic. Uh, uh, pretty significant corruption um, in the church during the, during the Avignon papacy, which isn't entirely a new story. Um, it sort of wax and wanes throughout the history of uh, of the papacy, but during, during the Avignon papacy, um, there's sort of a low point of corruption. And so it earns for a name for itself, according to critics, the Babylonian captivity. Um, this is not a name necessarily given to it by you know, later historians, centuries later, um, contemporaries, people living right, right um, at this time and shortly after give it this captivity, give it this title. In fact, uh, the humanist poet Petrarch is the one who, who likens it to a Babylonian captivity of the church, a time when Israel um, lives in exile for 70 years, 
um, living in servile fear uh, of, the, of the Babylonian rulers. Uh, and so Petrarch calls it, it's like a Babylonian captivity. The, uh, the, the, the popes are simply under the thumb of the king, living in exile, not in Rome, where they, where they should be. Um, Dante, now admittedly, he's maybe a biased source. Dante is bound to be pro-Italy, right? Critical of French, French popes. Um, but Dante says, you know, uh, the Avignon papacy, uh, Avignon was like, a, was like the sewer of church history, basically. Um, and he, he even writes poems uh, about the, the corruption uh, at this time. So seven popes uh, for 70 years live um, in, <coughs> in Avignon. Um, there are critics until Gregory the 11th. Gregory the 11th, the last uh, pope during the Avignon papacy. He'd already been thinking maybe he should return to Rome after 70 years in, in Avignon, but he had a visitor, a special visitor who came and sealed the deal for him. Uh, Catherine of Siena. Who knows who Catherine of Siena is? Does that name sound familiar? Dr. Horton knows. That's good. <laughs> we can breathe a sigh of relief there. <laughs> um, well, I won't go into... Catherine of Siena was one of, the, um, one of the most famous mystics of the medieval period. Um, she started having visions of Jesus when she was you know, four or five years old in her youth, had them throughout her life. Um, was always sort of on the fringe of, of monastic orders. Um, she did eventually uh, join a monastic order, received the stigmata. Um, of course, it was only visible to her. It's one of the puzzling claims. No one else could see it, but she had it, uh, she claims. Um, in any case, she was a bit of a rebel. The church never knew quite what to make of her, um, but she came to be useful. And so in 1377, uh, a number of powerful Italian families from Florence um, sort of put her on the, on the dole to go to Babylon, uh, to, go, to go to Babylon, effectively to go to Babylon, to go to Avignon uh, and convince the Pope to return to Rome. The Florentine families wanted the Pope back in Rome so that they could exert their influence rather than, uh, rather than the King of France. So Gregory meets with Catherine of Siena, this mystic, and, and agrees. She convinces him that Avignon really is a totally corrupt place and that it'd be better to just move back to Rome, start again, fresh, fresh slate. So Gregory picks up the Curia, um, the whole papal court, and they move back, uh, back to Rome. Two months after his return to Rome, uh, Gregory dies. And there's another papal election and another big decision to be made uh, by the College of Cardinals. What kind of pope will we choose? A pro-French pope or a pro-Italian pope? A pope who will want to live in Rome, a pope who will return um, to Avignon? We don't know. Big decision to, to be made by 15 or 16 cardinals 
uh, a number of cardinals had stayed behind in, in Avignon and didn't, didn't get to vote. Um, you can't really imagine the context. I'm not sure what the analogies would be uh, for it today. Football hooliganism comes to mind. We don't really have anything like this in American football and baseball. Maybe when the, when the Raiders fans come to town, everyone gets a little nervous, you know, locks their windows um, and doors, that kind of thing. Uh, but football hooligans um, and, and English soccer and in European soccer, well, you know, they're really dangerous. I mean, they shut borders down. They confiscate passports. If you buy a, a ticket to the World we're getting off track here. If you buy a ticket to the World Cup, they actually put your passport number on the ticket so that you can't, you know, um, sell it at the gate. Um, these are extremely violent, uh, organized gangs organized around loyalty to different soccer teams, and they frequently meet in the street and fight, etc. Well, that's the context in Rome. Um, it's approaching uh, a sort of revolutionary atmosphere. Um, mobs are running through the street, attacking priests. Um, the mobs in Rome want a Roman uh, uh, pope. So they're trying to influence um, the, the election. And at several points, um, pan all pandemonium breaks out, and the, and the cardinals making the decision are really feeling threatened. So they go into the conclave, and they choose not a Roman cardinal, in fact, a man who wasn't a cardinal at all and who wasn't even in Rome, uh, a man named Bartholomew, um, who is the archbishop, I think, of Milan. Uh, they choose him to be the pope, but he's at least Italian. And so they send word to him that they've elected him the Pope to see what his response will be to bring him to Rome to accept you know, the nomination. Meanwhile, the mobs actually break in to the Vatican Palace, into the conclave, and threaten the cardinals with their lives. Well, the cardinals choose the, the, the route of, of deception, it must be said. Uh, rather than tell the mobs the truth that they'd elected this guy who was not Roman but Italian and they you know, had sent for him, they kind of looked around the room and chose an old Italian Roman cardinal and put him forward and said, we chose him to be the pope. And the crowd seemed to be pacified by that. They left. And then in the middle of the night, the whole college, college of cardinals snuck out of Rome and, and left. Um, they had no intention of making this old Roman cardinal um, the, the pope. Uh, it was simply to placate the crowd. So they went off and they confirmed their original decision um, that they'd elected the Archbishop of Milan, who was uh, Urban VI, I believe. <coughs> Urban VI. Well, Urban VI uh, accepted the nomination, becomes pope, and uh, reigned for roughly uh, a year. It turns out the College of Cardinals regretted their decision because Urban VI was a bit of, of, of a reformer would be, would be way too strong a word. Um, but some of his early sermons were scathingly critical of the cardinals themselves for their luxurious lifestyle. Uh, and in fact, at one point, a few months into his reign, um, he forbid 
bishops, um, the, the upper hierarchy of the church from receiving any commissions or patronage from secular rulers. Insisting, in other words, that, that the church be the meal ticket for the leaders, to, have no, to take no money from, uh, from secular leaders. So the College of Cardinals came to regret their decision of electing Urban VI Pope. Um, so much so that they went off to Perugia, of all places, and uh, elected a new pope. Okay? Um, Robert of Geneva, Clement VII. I gotta make a little room. Sorry. Clement VII. Um, while I'm writing, I can comment on the significance of Perugia. If you were really paying attention last week, I mentioned that uh, Urban the Sixth, yeah, <clears throat> that one of the uh, archbishops of Milan during the investiture controversy was chosen to uh, to be an anti-pope. And here we have in Perugia, now in the 14th century, um, the College of Cardinals choosing another anti-Roman pope. I'm trying to figure out how to turn this into a joke. I'm, <laughs> you're all looking very seriously at me. I'm, wh- where I'm going with this is, <laughs> is thinking, all this time before the 20th and 21st century, both in Milan and in Perugia, there are anti-Roman tendencies. Um, and, and maybe someday, it turns out, this will bear fruit in terms of the life of CURC. It's, I thought it'd be funny. It's clearly not funny. Um, but it's kind of fun when, when two cities with connection to our church um, show up in the history of the papacy as being decidedly against the papacy. Um, it's an encouraging note. Thank you for polite chuckles. Um, okay, uh, they elect uh, Clement uh, VII uh, and depose Urban VI. But Urban VI doesn't go quietly. He's not about to be deposed um, and, and give up rule. And so um, he takes his papal army and attacks Clement VII and trounces him uh, as victorious, doesn't kill Clement VII. Clement VII, um, a defeated pope, flees to Avignon. So now we have in Rome Urban VI claiming to be pope and and in France, Clement VII claimed to be pope. This is the second great schism I raised at the end of it. Now we have a major problem in church history. We have two, two claimants to the papacy, uh, two men both claiming to be pope. Uh, for, for 40 years, there's a pope in Rome and a pope in Avignon, mutually excommunicating each other, condemning everyone um, who pays loyalty to one pope or the other, um, condemning everyone under their spiritual leadership also. It's not just that two popes are communi- excommunicating each other. They're excommunicating each other's entire congregations. So at this point, almost everyone in Western Christendom is, is, uh, is threatened, um, spiritually speaking, with no, no real um, assurance of, of salvation. Uh, for, for 40 years, they build up their own curias, papal courts. They have their own colleges of cardinals. 
they elect their own successors. Um, and that's how, uh, that's how this plays out. The Great Schism lasts from 1378 to, 14, um, to 1414. Um, <clears throat> at this point, like I mentioned last week, um, a tragic situation in church history um, really almost turns, turns to comedy um, because eventually there are enough cardinals and bishops and leaders in the church to say, we really need to put an end to this. Um, let's call a council in Pisa. And we have a simple plan. Both popes in Rome and in Avignon will, will resign, will abdicate, and will elect a new pope. It's a very simple plan. Um, the problem is uh, neither pope is willing to go along with this plan. So the, uh, this, for all practical purposes, would seem to be a, an ecumenical council, at least of the Western Church. Um, it was very well attended. Everyone was there. Uh, willing to finally um, put put all of this nonsense aside, um, but both popes refused to resign, and at this point, um, the cardinals carry out their original plan, at least half of it, and they elect a new pope. Um, the pope, his name is John the Twenty Third. Well, they initially elect a pope um, before him. Who, who didn't live very long, he died. So they, uh, just after the council had broken up, they elected John the 23rd. In other words, rather than solve the problem of the, papal, of the Great Schism, uh, they actually enlarged the scope of the problem. Now there are three popes, um, uh, all excommunicating each other. Um, and so 1409 is the Council of Pisa. So we have a few years yet before, um, before the Great Schism um, is, is ended. Uh, one interesting thought Dr. Horton actually just told me about this quotation this week Um, there's a long history here Rome has never fully acknowledged or recognized the scope of this problem in terms of the Great Schism, with multiple popes excommunicating each other. Um, in fact, it's, it's difficult to, to see in the end um, which pope they choose. They probably side with Urban's line of popes and his successors. Um, they probably reject the Avignon line. Um, John the Twenty-Third. there's some ambiguity about John the Twenty-Third. Um, every now and then, however, in a candid moment, you find a Roman theologian admitting that this is a major problem. And curiously enough, um, one of the men who, who mentions uh, the Avignon Schism is a major problem for the church uh, was not the current pope, the most recent one, but the pope before him, uh, Benedict XVI, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. Before he became pope, um, he said this of, of the papal schism. He said, for nearly half a century... He wrote this in his Principles of Catholic Theology. He said, for nearly half a century, the church was split into two or three obediences that excommunicated one another, so that every Catholic lived under excommunication 
by one pope or another. And in the last analysis, here's a pretty astonishing line from a man who would go on to become a pope himself. No one could say with certainty which of the contenders had right on his side. The church no longer offered certainty of salvation. She had become questionable in her whole objective form. The true church, the true pledge of salvation, had to be sought outside the institution. That is a massive acknowledgement of problems by, by Cardinal Ratzinger um, before he would go on. So this was a real low point in church history, recognized uh, by everyone, including, including Roman theologians um, in their candid moments. Well, the situation couldn't persist um, forever. It turns out John XXIII was a total scoundrel. Um, uh, a, a real, a real, his past caught up with him. Um, if you know anything about British humor, British humor is incredibly dry and sarcastic. There's a British historian, Edward Gibbon, um, who, who wrote about John the 23rd. Uh, and, and, and here's what he had to say. Uh, I gotta find the quote. No, I've lost it now. Where are we? Um, ah, here we are, Edward Gibbon. Um, the more scandalous charges against the Pope were suppressed. In other words, they didn't charge him with everything they could have. Um, the vicar of Christ was, confu- uh, was accused only by the cardinals of piracy, rape, sodomy, murder, and incest. That's, that's like sarcastic British humor uh, 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 in the extreme. They didn't level all the charges they could, just piracy, sodomy, murder, and incest. Um, so the situation can't endure forever. Um, the very same leaders in the church who'd called the Council of Pisa and elected John XXIII um, were pushing for, for a new council. And finally, a secular ruler, Sigismund, um, the king of, uh, of Hungary and Germany, uh, decided to call a council himself. Since 1054, all church councils has been called by the pope. But now we get a return to what we saw in Constantine uh, a few weeks ago. Now we have a secular ruler calling a church council. Um, and then the council meets uh, in Constance in Switzerland from 1414 to 1417 to try to figure out uh, how to deal with this situation of three popes. Um, to tell the story pretty quickly, John XXIII uh, agreed to attend uh, the Council of Constance. Urban VI refused to attend. He saw the writing on the wall. Clement VII refused to attend. He also thought, this spells the end of my papacy. I'm not going to go. If I just close my eyes, maybe, maybe I can ignore what happened. John XXIII amazingly shows up at the council until these charges are brought against him, at which point, in the middle of the night, dressed as a baker, he sneaks out of Constance and goes into hiding and tries to call the whole council into question, uh, at which point the College of Cardinals, 
um, issue a decree insisting on something that they call the principle of conciliarism. Meaning, the councils are the supreme authority in the church. Councils have the right even um, to authorize decisions that binds popes. Um, a conciliar, the conciliar movement in the church insists not the pope at the, is the supreme head of the church, um, but the corporate gathering uh, of bishops and cardinals in a church council is the supreme authority of the church. So they, they dismiss John XXIII's claims that, this is a, uh, that the Council of Constance wasn't, wasn't legitimate. And in fact, eventually, uh, they go and capture John XXIII and bring him back to Constance uh, and depose him formally. Um, the successors of Urban VI uh, uh, are deposed, and uh, there's one pope who goes off into hiding uh, Benedict the Thirteenth, um, he goes into exile in Spain um, and dies, refusing to um, acknowledge that the Council of Constance um, ever happened. At the end of the Council of Constance, um, Martin V is elected. So all the popes are deposed, um, and and Martin the Fifth is elected pope, recognized um, by all in the church, and eventually. In 1420, uh, he returns the papacy to, to Rome. Uh, the Council of Constance um, is over. Um, just to wrap up, the ambiguity of the legacy of John, John XXIII. Um, John XXIII was actually buried in, uh, in the Cathedral of Florence, in the baptistry of the Cathedral of Florence. And the very famous um, sculptor Donatello um, carved his tombstone and placed on it the papal insignia, which is only given to authentic popes. And at the time, there doesn't seem to have been much kerfluffle about that. Um, later history, uh, in, in terms of Roman history, refuses to recognize John the Twenty-Third as having been a legitimate pope. So you have a uh, an anti-pope in John the 23rd, but nonetheless, whose very tombstone bears the, the papal insignia on it. Eventually, there's another John the 23rd, uh, a very famous one, all the way in the 1950s. Anyone know John the 23rd? Point to Horton again, he'll probably know the answers. <laughs> John the 23rd um, is the Italian pope who calls the Second Vatican Council in the 1950s. It's as if they didn't recognize that, that he even existed. So another John the 23rd comes along, and he's not John the 24th. They simply don't recognize him as the Pope. They give him, there's a new John the 23rd, Cardinal Roncalli, um, who calls the Second Vatican Council um, in 1962 to 1965, thereabouts. Um, so there's a kind of ambi amb ambiguous history. Um, uh, the one Pope went into hiding um, and died in, in exile, and then the other Pope... Um, acknowledged Martin as the new, new authentic pope, so he was bumped down just a cardinal. Um, so he landed on his feet. <laughs> it worked out all right for him. Um, next week, we're going to talk about the other major decision taken at the Council of Constance. So what do we have here? Um, 
in, in two minutes. I don't dare go over it last time. I went over and got in big trouble. I don't dare go over this time. Um, but what do we have in the Council of Constance to wrap it up? Um, roughly 100 years before Luther, we have uh, a major conciliar, uh, a major victory for the conciliar movement, uh, establishing the authority of, um, of councils over popes. That will, of course, be challenged, um, but it's at least a shot across the bow. Um, we have a major crisis in the church because of lust for power, uh, not just of the Bishop of Rome, but of multiple leaders within the church. And so we have a major controversy um, over corruption, uh, etc. Eventually, the Council of Constance solves the Great Schism, but they also took another significant decision at the Council of Constance. Um, they tried a quote-unquote heretic of the church, uh, uh, a bohemian, which means a hipster, right? Um, <laughs> someone who, who drinks craft beer and uh, has a handlebar mustache. Um, no, they tried an important, uh, an important Czech leader in the church, a preacher of reform named Jan Hus, at the Council of Constance. He had preached reform and written a number of, uh, of, 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 um, of works insisting on the ultimate authority, not of councils or of the Pope, but of Scripture. And for this teaching was called to Constance, uh, was put on trial, and was condemned and a heretic, died a really nasty death, burned with hot pokers, um, stabbed with hot pokers, and then finally burned at the stake. Um, but there's a, a very famous saying, uh, almost even a prophecy. Jan Hus, as he was being you know, carried, uh, brought out to, to be executed, said, you may be burning a goose today, but a swan, uh, the Lord will, will raise up a swan who you won't be able to silence. Well, everyone uh, in Luther's day thought surely Luther was the swan. Um, in fact, we'll really end on this. Uh, if, you ever, uh, if you ever in a Lutheran church, uh, the lectern from which scripture is read in many Lutheran churches uh, will sometimes have a swan carved in it, um, sort of acknowledging uh, the, the truth of, of this connection between Jan Hus and his insistence on the authority of scripture over both popes and councils. So there's an interesting little connection there. Uh, we may have, do we, we don't have time. Do we have time for questions? According to this clock, I have another hour. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, one quick question, yeah. Well, he's one of a, an important uh, uh, figures who tries to reform the corruption of the church and, and tries to insist on the, um, the importance of scripture. Um, but you wouldn't call him a reformer in the sense of being Protestant. Now, sort of a reformer in a small r, lowercase r sense. Um, I think we've got to. I think we've got to go. Twelve sixteen. Oh, it's my children that are causing the problems, and the and so I've got to rescue our teacher from them. Uh, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, uh, in ourselves, we know that we're lost, um, but grant to us that we may not only have life, uh, but desire life uh, more abundantly. In Christ our Lord. Uh, it's in and through Jesus, uh, your Son, we have a secure salvation. Uh, and we thank you for the precious, preciousness of your gifts 
um, to hosts. Grant us grace uh, and mercy this Lord's day uh, and hereafter we ask in Jesus' name, amen.